this week on Painting Lines. I think this was maybe the most predictable win of the tournament. If Rublev had won this match, it would have set a completely different tone. Oh, yeah. I think even Rublev was expecting Medvedev to win. I think Alcaraz just wasn't in the right, not only physical state, but also the right state of mind at this point. Mm. Welcome to the Painting Lines podcast, your one-stop shop for all things tennis. Join Eric and Aiden in their discussion for updates on news and pop culture. And from hot takes to betting, they've got you covered. Ready? Play. Welcome back to Painting Lines. Last week, we previewed the ATP World Tour Finals. And this week, we're going to be giving a recap after what I would consider a pretty exciting tournament. So, Eric... Let's just uh, kick things off with uh, some initial thoughts. What did you think about the tournament overall? Yeah, honestly, I was a little shocked um, with Sinner's performance. He definitely exceeded my expectations. You know, going in, I thought it was going to be the Alcaraz show, but Sinner really proved me wrong. And another kind of initial reaction, just kind of disappointed, not in Tsitsipas personally, but just the fact that he couldn't really get much done there, whether it was his injury, um, his, you know, absurd comments, his outfit, just not a great showing by him. And the last thing is just the whole round robin style. Like it's very interesting to me that you can still lose and then go on and win a championship versus a slam where, you know, you lose and you're out. So those are just some initial thoughts. What about you? Yeah, I definitely think uh, those are some points we'll touch on throughout this episode because those are some pretty big aspects of this tournament that I think stood out. My initial thoughts, I think it delivered on really what you expect in terms of level of play from the top eight guys in the world. I think it had some really tight, exciting matches and some good surprise upsets. Like, I think even with the top eight guys in the world, there are definitely years where you don't really see as many upsets. And I think this year we got a good amount that I think makes it a special year. Yeah, for sure. Awesome tennis. Just great week overall. I agree. I, I got to watch a lot of the matches too, so I was excited about that. Yeah. I like how they were 8.30 and 3, you know, throughout the day. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't as great for me because I got uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I got 5.30 and noon, so I essentially got to watch one match. Exactly. Eastern time was, was perfect. Yeah, exactly. It's funny because, yeah, the East Coast, you guys can watch those European matches a lot easier than the West Coast. Yeah, <laughs> I have to get up at like 4 a.m. to watch the final of some of these big tournaments. Yeah, at least for the Australian Open out in California, you should be a little better, right, than the East well, Coast? Well, on the East Coast, it's what, 3 a.m.? West Coast, it's midnight or something like that? Yeah. So it's so, like either you, you have to wake up in the middle of the night or you just have to stay up all night. So it's uh, it's tough either way, I think. Yeah. All right. Should we jump in? Yeah, sounds good. So uh, kicking things off, we had the group stage, obviously, like you were talking about round robin format. Starting with Sissipas versus Sinner, one of the matches that was just nothing crazy. It was really what you expected, I feel like. Pretty comfortable win for Sinner. Tsitsipas didn't play poorly, but just didn't really look like he had that much of a chance in this match. What did you think? I don't know if it's exactly what I expected. I think I expected a, a lot tighter of a match, maybe even three sets, but just not a great start to the tournament, I feel like, at least for the entertainment aspect, because I was going in and I was thinking, all right, Tsitsipas, you know, not the best season, still a good season, but maybe this is his time to actually show out and kind of prove something and then he just didn't yeah i mean especially like seating wise this was a four mm -hmm. versus six matchup so 
one of the closest in terms of the the seeding difference and it was definitely not one of the tightest matches yeah yeah how about the uh second match of the day yeah that one did deliver though Djokovic versus Runa very tight match I really thought Runa might have a chance after that second set and tiebreak because it seemed like Djokovic's level kind of took a, a step back especially in that tiebreak where I think Runa won it 7-1 or something like that. So Runa seemed to have some momentum going into that third set, and then Djokovic was able to just flip that switch and lock back in and ended up pulling it out. Yeah, I wonder if he and Boris were making eye contact at any point, if there's <laughs> any like tension or just... Yeah, I wonder if that could, could have impacted his mentality at all in terms of uh, maybe why he lost focus or something in the second set, maybe helped him actually lock back in in the third. It's hard to say because we, we can't control the camera shots we see all the time, but <laughs> it'd be something to to look at, see where he's, uh, his eyes are going. Yeah. Do you know what's up with Runa's shorts? You know how he pulls them up super high or at least yeah. one of them? <laughs> I don't know why he does that. He just needs that uh, no restriction on his uh, flexibility. Yeah. Well, I have, I have a theory. You ever seen Boris Becker back in the day? <laughs> Is he before the short shorts? Oh, he's got the shortest shorts. <laughs> but didn't Runa do that before? I think he did. Ted yeah. Back was his coach. Yeah, so. he did. Just trying to make some parallels. Yeah. Uh, but uh, moving on to day two, we had Medvedev Rublev. And to me, I think this was maybe the most predictable win of the tournament. If Rublev had won this match, it would have set a completely different tone on the tournament. Because I think everybody going into this match was expecting Medvedev to win. Oh, yeah. I think even Rublev was expecting Medvedev to win. But I've said this before, too. I feel like for Medvedev, this is the perfect matchup for him. Because he's a very patient player and Rublev is not. He's very aggressive. So all he has to do is just wear him down. Let him make the errors, which Rublev will eventually. 100%. And I think he needs to change his mentality in terms of that aspect of his game. I think he needs to be like, how can I beat this? Not, I'm going to try to just play my game and outplay this guy mm -hmm. because clearly that yeah. isn't working. Yeah, that's kind of a stubbornness too. It's like he's not going to change. Yeah. You can't always just trust in my game is going to be better than this other person's game. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to be like, okay, I'm going to shift my game so that I can win this matchup. Yeah. And a lot of players, they'll adjust to Medvedev. Um, they'll attack his deep stance by either serve and volleying or like coming up with approach shots, whereas Rublev just stays back too and lets Medvedev dictate these points from six feet behind the baseline. Yeah, I mean, I think back to uh, the U.S. Open semifinal, Alcaraz was doing so many serve and volleys, and was pretty successful as long as he hit a decent volley and a decent serve. I don't think Rublev really does that as much because his game isn't set up for him to come to the net as much. Right. And then how about the next match? Yeah. First big shock upset of the tournament. It was interesting because I saw this match and Zverev pulls it off. And immediately I was like, okay, Alcaraz must must be not fully healthy. Because based on how Alcaraz has been playing this year, you wouldn't expect him to lose a match like this to Zverev. Because Zverev, while he played very well this year, didn't seem to be near the level of Alcaraz. But based on the performance in the rest of the tournament, it didn't seem like Alcaraz was actually that far off of his top level. Like he wasn't, I don't think a hundred percent, but he was playing somewhere at around 90, I would say. And the fact that Zverev was able to beat him is I think really just impressive on Zverev. Yeah. And also that just put him ahead in the head to head too, you know, four to three, I could have sworn Alcaraz kind of had his number there, but I guess not. Yeah. I think also since Zverev was kind of uh, at his peak level when Alcaraz was coming up onto the tour, 
he's going to probably get those a couple of matchups early on that he can pull away from Alcaraz, and then Alcaraz is going to come back, and that's probably why it uh, ended up being relatively even. But yeah, no, I mean, if you listen to the preview episode, I did say I'm not going to toot my own horn a little bit, but I did say Zverev was the guy that I picked as maybe the dark horse expected it probably would be the top four guys advancing but if anyone was to advance from those bottom four seeds i said that zvera was maybe my guy and turned out to be pretty close on that prediction i mean because zvera ended up going two and one was very close to advancing ended up not advancing because of the the set tie break in terms of how the groups are ranked but i think that was uh, in the end uh, not a bad prediction right no great prediction as far as Zverev, though do you find that as a success like do you think he should be happy with his performance his season yeah i think he should actually be very happy with the season because of the injury he had to deal with last year this year could have very easily been like incredibly mediocre so the fact that he was able to not only make the ATP finals, but nearly advance out of the group stage, I think is a very impressive year for him. I agree. I think even though he didn't advance, he can still look at this and hold his head high. Be like, wow, look at all I accomplished. And even Curious was saying that too. Like as an analyst, when he was announcing, he was saying he could look to Zverev as motivation because he's been battling injuries too. He hasn't played at all this season. So just looking at Zverev and his ability to come back is motivation for Nick Kyrgios as well. Yeah, did you see uh, Kyrgios's little uh, flub when he was commentating? What was it? He was talking about, I think, someone playing against Medvedev. And he goes, when you look at guys that have had sex, success against Medvedev. And I'm like, yeah, all the guys that have had sex are really good yeah. against Medvedev. <laughs> but, uh, oh, my God. But uh, uh, last funny. comment on this match, Alcaraz came out after this match and was like, okay, this surface is really fast. That was his big thing. He was like, this surface is so much faster than any other hard court we've played on this year. And I think, to be honest, Zverev kind of took advantage of that because obviously he's a pretty fast serve and Alcaraz wasn't ready for it. Obviously, a faster court kind of favors different guys. I feel like Alcaraz is more of a counterpuncher like i think he can play defense and then he'll strike when he needs to strike but here in the fast court you know he's having a harder time playing defense and setting up points that maybe he would really want to whereas verb i think he's like the ultimate you know like you said fast court player he's big he's strong he has a pretty flat backhand too that he can really use especially the cross court yeah, I think the irony there is that Alcaraz won Wimbledon, which is like the right. ultimate fast court. Right. I guess they have slowed it down a little bit hypothetically, but like still grass is so much of a faster surface than hardcore mm -hmm. usually is. But uh, moving on to day three, Sinner beating Djokovic. That Runa match, it was close, but Sinner really just seemed to almost just outplay him. Yeah, I think he ended up poking the bear there. <laughs> yeah. You saw Djokovic at the end of the match just... V lined out of the out of the stadium. Yeah, Djokovic not in a good mood after that loss, uh -uh. especially because uh, the win over Runa gave him that year end number one. So he was like coming off a little bit of a high off of that, and then maybe he wasn't as locked in. That could be possibly what it was, where yeah, he's like, man. I just got the year end number one, and then comes into his next match and loses to the for the first time against this guy that yeah, like I said, never lost to before. 
Oh my god. Hey, I know you could just tell too. The center like at the end was like, whoa, I, I could do this. You know, once you beat Djokovic once, you kind of get that confidence. Like, all right, he is beatable. He's human. Yeah, and it, it showed the center can really beat anyone on the tour if he plays well enough because mm-hmm. now he has wins over like everybody in the top 10 pretty much but then i think the biggest shock of the tournament in terms of event not necessarily just match was city Paz pulled out three games in against runa not a great look for city Paz. yeah not a great look but could have been a money thing so you just get paid three hundred twenty-five thousand dollars just for being there initiation fee and then each group stage wins worth worth almost four hundred thousand. so if you're able to play like that's a lot of money at stake and i think i think you have to do it because of a financial reason like that is your job that's your livelihood but i do see where a lot of people are upset with him for taking the opportunity away from her coach so i'll leave it at that i know you have some more thoughts on it too yeah don't you? i mean i didn't even realize the initiation fee was 325 grand which is pretty massive so I guess that does make it a little bit more like understandable. I thought it was more based on like you had to get the wins and it was less about just showing up. Well, I think they did it because they want the people there. You know, like what Outcrass had to sit out last year, you know, they want the best of the best. They don't want the alternatives. So I think they kind of up the stakes. Yeah. It's also like you have someone like Rublev who ended up losing all his (laughs) matches. That would just suck if he just pulled up, lost all his matches. And they're like, yeah, you're going home with nothing, buddy. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, not too shabby. Yeah, but like you were saying with Alcaraz, last year he didn't show up, and this year we knew he wasn't 100% probably, but he still played in all his matches and was probably close to like 90% and put had a good showing still. But I think it would have been nice to see Hercatch get a real chance to actually play in the tournament and not have this weird situation where he comes in for one match at the end. Yeah, especially because we talked about it last week. He was cruising, you know. He had all that momentum going in, too. So I think he really could have done some damage. Yeah, it would have been definitely a cool thing to uh, to see. But let me ask you this. Did you know of anything Sitsipas injury-related going in, or was this a complete shock to you as well? I didn't really know, yeah. I didn't know either. Did it? Was that disclosed? Did he say anything like, hey, you know, my back's not feeling too great, so I might not have the best tournament? Because you know how a lot of players like to preface matches with, yeah, you know, I'm not coming in my 100%. I don't feel well. Just so like when they do lose, it's kind of expected. This could be a big controversy, though, because changing sports, Joe Burrow with Cincinnati, remember how he was allegedly, you know, fine going in? He was not on the injury report, but then he had torn ligaments in his wrist. So, there's an investigation that the Bengals were hiding his injury going into the game, which, you know, costs a lot of people money. If they're if you're gambling on the Bengals and you know Joe Burrow's not a hundred percent and he's likely not gonna be able to play, there should be an injury report. People should be disclosed of that information because the lines should be different and you don't have all the information you need to make an informed betting decision. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like this could be similar in tennis. You know, if you have players going in without disclosing injuries, there's a lot of there's a lot at stake. Like people who buy tickets to watch Runa and Sitsipas and then they only get to see three games because Sitsipas comes in injured. But if they would have known that, they probably wouldn't have bought the tickets. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like there needs to be better disclosure with injuries in sports in general. 100%. Yeah. Moving on to day four of the group stage. To me, probably the most boring day of the tournament. Nothing really unexpected. 
there wasn't even a set that went the way of the underdog. Medvedev beat Zverev in two, and then Alcaraz beat Rublev in two. I think really just nothing super shocking from those matches to me. Yeah, the only entertainment from that day was Rublev just absolutely throwing fits on the court. Like, I felt bad for him because it does suck, but it was kind of funny to watch him, like, smash his racket, smash his knee with his racket and start bleeding, and then just, like, you know, palms up every five minutes, sighing, just walking around the court like he didn't want to be there. But then again, if you're Alcaraz, that's what you want to do to your opponent. You want to frustrate them so much. You could just tell he knew he was in his head. Yeah, I think Rublev just... I think he might have realized at that point that he wasn't going to win any of the matches. And that's just not a good feeling to have. Yeah. Because even though he still had to play Zverev, and that was probably his best chance to win a match, he saw that Zverev already beat this guy that he was playing and getting dominated by. So he's like, that's not a good sign for me. Um, I'm not feeling pretty good, very good about this. Yeah, it's just one of those things where you could – try everything throw everything you have and it's just not working like well i'm i'm beat and i'm frustrated yeah i think we kind of talked about this last week but rublev really needs to make a change with his game because mm-hmm. if you're going zero and six or zero and three in this tournament zero and six in sets something has to change i mean you said it yourself you said he had a great season or you know relatively great season he just hasn't beat any of the top players so he needs to do something to move up that one step to be able to beat these top players he's kind of like when you talk about in uh, like boxing or ufc where it's as someone's fighting up the rankings rublev right now is kind of a gatekeeper into like the top 10 top five where you have to be a, a next level guy to get past him but if you can beat him you can beat him yeah well i think one thing he definitely needs to change is his you know mentality just the fact that he cannot be throwing these fits on court because I think it's it's like a slippery slope. Once he does it once, it just gets worse and worse and worse, where I feel like when Djokovic or Medvedev, when they throw a fit on the court, it actually helps them. You know, they kick it into gear. They use it. They put that energy into something else, where I feel like with Rublev, it's just a down downhill once he starts. Yeah, and also it seems like he isn't able to, like, lock back in, mm-hmm. which – is big not only for him, but also for his opponent. Like, his opponent gains momentum by seeing him Mm -hmm. looking angry, yelling at his box every two seconds, hitting himself with his racket. That only gives his opponent more confidence. Yeah, for sure. And I wonder if it's strategic to... I know we talked about this before, like celebrating when you can see your opponent just like down bad and uh, visibly frustrated, like doing little things, like, you know... Yeah. celebrating uh when they make an air not even celebrating but just fist pump and kind of strategic little things to keep them angry keep poking them yeah it's all a mental game <laughs> it is all a mental winning ugly <laughs> exactly exactly but uh then we had last day for the green group i want to say sinner beat runa really a weird part about having a round robin tournament is that it could have been better for Sinner to lose this match. It's weird to say that, but obviously if he had lost, Runa would have advanced instead of Djokovic based on the uh, set head-to-head between the two of them. So while it was a good win from Sinner, it it does kind of feel a little bit weird for him because he knows in the back of his head, like, if I had lost that match, 
I maybe wouldn't have had to play Djokovic in the final. <laughs> but then again, like you can't throw the match. That's just no. match fixing. It's not not something that you can do. I know. And especially since you beat him before, you probably think, oh, yeah, I got this. Like, doesn't matter. He could come again because Sinner was riding high, man. Like he was on a whole nother level that tournament. Yeah. I mean, undefeated to the final. That's pretty yeah. damn impressive. I know. And um, I mean, so going back to that Runa match, I don't know if you noticed, but he was kind of like gimping around. He was grabbing his back and the announcers were saying if he's not 100 percent, he could easily retire this match move on um still win the group i think and essentially have a free pass to the semis but he didn't take that opportunity like it, it's kind of a weird thing he could have he had an out if he needed it but uh respect to him for not taking it yeah i think also in their head-to-head sinner had never beaten runa oh i didn't know that so sinner had to prove to himself i can beat this guy because imagine he pulls out against him in this match, comes into the final, and he's like, okay, I've actually never beaten this guy before. And that puts, I think, even more pressure on him. Well, imagine if Runa had two walkovers that tournament. That would have been a he crazy. Barely, he barely had to do anything. And he's yeah, crazy advance. Just just loses one close match to Djokovic and then just advances because he gets two walkovers. <laughs> you know what's I funny like- is I think, I think if he got, had gotten two walkovers, he would have actually won the group because he would have technically based on how the forfeits work had like two straight sets victories and one three set loss. Wow. Pretty crazy. And then obviously Djokovic beat her catch. I mean, her catch, I think did an incredible job considering he wasn't in the tournament and his most recent match had been an exhibition against Fritz after that Runa Sitsipas debacle, forcing three sets against a guy like Djokovic who ended up winning the tournament is uh, really just an impressive showing. Yeah, what was the deal with that exhibition match? Was that just entertainment for the crowd or was that whoever won that was going to be in the tournament? It was, I think it was just an exhibition match just for the crowd because obviously they paid to see Runa versus Sitsipas mm-hmm. and you only got three games of that. So those tickets, I'm sure, were very expensive because it's the World Tour Finals. So they weren't going to just be like, yep, you got screwed. Sorry. They had to have another sort of backup plan. Interesting. See, I didn't even know Fritz was in turn at the time. Yeah, neither did I. Yeah. I didn't <laughs> know that they were there until I saw that they were playing this exhibition match. Then uh, day six, last day of the round robin, Zverev, like I said, beat Rublev. Another impressive win i mean winning in straight sets over a guy like rublev is still just a good job by zverev but rublev really had just a tough finals overall Mm -hmm. yeah i mean back to the drawing board for him i think he'll have a good australia hopefully hopefully and then alcaraz beat medvedev also straight sets and afterward you you sent me this that medvedev made this comment about his form and It was something like, yeah, I think my level in this match was actually even better than it was against Sasha or something like that. Yeah, and And I still lost. Yeah, and so the the question you kind of posed to me was like, is this a shot at Zverev? Like, oh, is he saying I played played worse against Zverev and still beat the shit out of him? Yeah. I think it could be that. 
but I think more it's just saying Alcaraz is just even at, not at a hundred percent is still just next level. Yeah. Like this guy can beat Medvedev in straight sets, even if Medvedev's like I played pretty well against him. Right. I think even even though it's not a direct shot at Zverev, it could still be interpreted negatively. Oh, one hundred percent. And yeah. I, that's why I love Medvedev's press conference. He's so straight up. You know, he's like the most authentic guy out there. He just speaks his mind. He's not really media trained to just be like, yeah, you know, just got to get out there and keep getting reps in and keep practicing. No, like he is, he's going to tell you how he feels. Yeah. He's going to be like, dude, I'm just going to stop showing up to the Grand yeah. Slams. <laughs> but, oh uh, my God. Yeah. Moving on, semifinals, top four guys advanced. Pretty much like we were saying in our preview, it was really hard to see anybody other than the top four guys getting out of there. Sinner versus Medvedev and Alcaraz versus Djokovic, which I think weren't really the semifinal matchups we were expecting. Like Sinner winning the group made these a little bit different. Starting off with uh, Sinner versus Medvedev, it was a battle. It was a, a tough three-set match, but Sinner got it done in three and it ends up being his third straight win versus Medvedev. That's really a positive trajectory for Sinner, considering he's been moving up. He's been bridging that gap between the rest of the guys in the top three. Now it seems like the top four are really the ones that are separated. And then it's like Rublev is the gatekeeper, and then everyone else is separated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so it's his third straight win against Medvedev. Wow, I was going to say maybe this could have been – something to do with the crowd because you saw how much energy they brought to the center matchups and man Medvedev was just losing it there too he was he called someone out in the crowd you see that he walked over he did like the come here come down here yeah it's funny because that was one thing that was one thing you were talking about was oh do you think the the home crowd is going to be an advantage for center and I was kind of like I don't think it'll be that much of an advantage but ended up being a lot bigger of a deal than I think uh, I expected. Oh, yeah. I mean, hopefully, hopefully we can get some good American tennis players in the next five, ten years, bring the ATP finals back to MSG. Yeah. I mean, I think we'll just at least see it in like the U.S. Open, hopefully, because we already have seen it, I think, a little bit. I think someone like Shelton really fed Mm -hmm. off the crowd this year. And so if you can get that just kicked to a next level, maybe we'll get a, a Grand Slam champion in the U.S. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, Shelton. But yeah, no, Medvedev, he's that matchup with Sinner. I think, you know, two pretty grueling, like ground stroke guys. Sinner's serve's been on this whole tournament. I didn't realize he was that, you know, consistent with his serves. I don't know if he made an improvement recently, if that's kind of what kicked him into the next gear, but I thought he was serving very well. And that's kind of what pushed him over the edge in these matches. Yeah, I remember Parth kind of brought it up when we had uh, Quinn and Parth on that he made that change, like changed his footwork and his serve improved massively just this year. So that's been a, a big step up for him. Mm-hmm. But uh, then the other semifinal, Alcaraz and Djokovic, honestly, I expected a closer match. This was probably the most one-sided of any of their matchups they've had because – all of their past matchups have been match of the year candidates. They played in Cincinnati. I think it was, in my opinion, maybe the match of the year. Wimbledon final, obviously up there match of the year. A lot of people probably have that as the match of the year. They played in, in the French Open, even though Alcaraz had to, like, wasn't fully healthy and had uh, issues with his cramping and stuff like that in that match. Still, a really 
tight for those first two sets. And then this one, Djokovic had some control over the match for the entire time. I mean, they had that 27-minute game in Wimbledon, and then you get this. Do you think it was just wear and tear on Alcaraz's body? You know, it's later in the tournament. He's not 100% healthy. Or was it just Djokovic dominating him strategy-wise? Well, I think it definitely was a little bit of wear and tear. I'll, I'll kind of get into that in actually my What's New in Tennis, the article I saw this week. But I think Alcaraz just wasn't in the right, not only physical state, but also the right state of mind at this point for the last couple matches of the year. Mm, okay. So let's let's get into the final then now. Yeah. So uh, Djokovic versus Sinner. It's kind of funny because in the preview for the, the tournament, I made this prediction. I was like, I think that Sinner's going to lose to Djokovic in the group stage, but then in the final, Sinner's going to come back. It's really hard to beat someone twice in a row, and Sinner's actually going to beat him. And I'm going to give myself half credit for this one because they did end up splitting the uh, two matchups, but Sinner got the first one, and then Djokovic got the second one. And in the end, this is probably the more predictable result because you wouldn't have really expected in this final maybe where Djokovic has all the experience being in these massive moments. Djokovic is just the year-end number one, and Sinner's going to feel more pressure in this final, I think. And so the fact that it got split this way in terms of the two matches was probably more expected than the way I said it was going to go. I mean, it is unfortunate for Sinner that – this is the way tennis works because it's not like the Super Bowl where you play one game and then that's it. This is a like a grueling week long tournament that actually favors Djokovic. Like that's where he excels. And, you know, Sinner may have been the better player that tournament, but at the end, he just couldn't finish it because it's all about like how well you can sustain. And Djokovic just does that better than anyone else. 100%. He's like a robot. Yeah, I know. But no, I, I really do think that Sinner was the player of the tournament. I think Djokovic was just able to outlast him, grind him out, basically. Yeah, especially in that final, it seemed like Sinner wasn't playing at the level he'd been playing at for the rest of the week. Mm -hmm. I think he was making so many unforced errors. He, it wasn't like he was going for too aggressive shots. It was just kind of like he was hitting balls two or three feet out wide or long, and Djokovic was just all over him. 100%. Relentless. But uh, looking into next year, I'm left with uh, a decent amount of questions. First up, what's left driving Djokovic? I mean, obviously the Olympics, but you look at everything else, like he has 10 Australian Opens. Is he really going to be driven to get an 11th Australian Open? Is that going to be motivating enough for him? The French Open, what does he need to prove in all these tournaments? Like, obviously... He's driven by, I need to be the best. I need to be the greatest of all time. He's already there. What is driving him to, to keep going, do you think? Records. Whatever record hasn't been set by him, I'm sure he, that's, what, that's what motivates him. Yeah, I mean, but outside the Olympics, what is there? Yeah, I don't know. I think to an extent, maybe he has to do like that, that Michael Jordan thing that they talked about in the last dance where you almost make up your motivating factors. Like mm -hmm. he has to pretend, okay, there's a guy right on my heels because 10 years from now, that guy will exist. 10 years from now, there's going to be a guy that has 21 grand slams and is going to try to be breaking my record of 24. So I have to be imagining that guy and I have to get to 28 so that guy can't pass me. He knows at some point in the future that person may exist. 
Wow. Yeah, that that's crazy comparison. I, I like that one a lot. Next thing, Alcaraz. A lot of people are saying, like, the only thing holding Alcaraz back is maybe his health because right now his potential seems off the charts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think health will be as big of an issue for Alcaraz, hopefully. Did you see that comment that he said Djokovic is always on his mind in every practice and stuff? And then Frere had to kind of come back and say, hey, you know, we're not focusing just on Djokovic. You just meant it as, like, yes, he's someone that, like you said, he established himself as number two and what's in his way, Djokovic. That's pretty much it. So, yeah. And then going down to the next spot in the rankings, is Sinner going to pass Medvedev? Because obviously Medvedev's number three right now, but Sinner, great ATB finals, great end of the year, has three straight wins against Medvedev. Do we see Sinner jumping up to number three and Medvedev falling to number four in the next year, do you think? This is a great question because – I've referenced this before, but like regression to the mean, like is Sinner, did he just play out of his mind and then he'll regress back to what he's been? Or is this a new level that he's just breaking out and getting better and better? Is it a peak or is he still on the way up? That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, because we know that Medvedev, like we know this is Medvedev's true level. Like he's been the world number one Mm -hmm. and his regression to the mean was dropping only behind Alcaraz and Djokovic. Mm Mm-hmm and still being able to compete and beat those guys. So his regression was not very far. Like his mean is number three. And so, yeah, we'll see. Cause it's not easy to beat someone like Medvedev three times in a row. So we'll see him lose to Medvedev. I'm sure again, at some point in the future, but yeah, it's tough to say whether he's on that rise still. Uh, pretty funny though, that we, we talked about it last episode where we had, you know, kind of the next gen guys and then the young guns and then just Djokovic, who's way older than all of them, that it came down to Djokovic and a young gun. Like the guys yeah. in the middle just kind of still getting still getting surpassed. <laughs> yeah, still getting surpassed. Yeah, they were getting they were held down by the big three for so long and now the yeah. younger guys are stepping yeah. up. But most of them had won before, right? Like Zverev, Medvedev, Sitsipas, they've all won an ATP final. So I kind of thought that this was Sinner's like breakout year to win one too. Yeah, it's kind of funny because yeah, the ATP finals is like the one the one big thing that the next <laughs> gen has been able to perform in is like, yeah, we've won ATP finals. We haven't won the Grand Slams, but ATP finals we got. Oh, did you see the picture? It was it was all eight of them. And then I think it's the captions like, oh, there's 27 or 28 Grand Slams between all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a classic. Literally just it's a classic joke to do when it's like one person yeah. has way more. Yeah. It's like you get you take a picture with Messi, it's like, yeah, eight ball and doors between us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Moving on, I think to be honest, I think Runa, I think he played pretty well despite uh losing both of his real matchups. He was playing the got two guys that were in the finals and he forced them both to three set matches. So I think pretty impressive. And while Runa hasn't had necessarily the best year. Like he's had some pretty impressive results, but he's had also cold, cold periods. I think he's looking really good. I think Becker is looking like he's definitely a positive and uh, is he's moving in a positive direction. Yeah, for sure. Like I said, little wins, you know, maybe he didn't have the best tournament, but still he could look back and say, all right, I played really well. And, you know, I was even in the finals too. So 
still something to use for the next year going forward. Yeah. And then the last thing looking next year, Zverev looks pretty much 100%. So what do we expect from him next year? Because obviously he's a guy that at his peak level, like that matchup with Nadal in 2022 looked like it was going to be an incredible match. And he gets injured and his level drops off because of that has to make a massive comeback. But if he can get back to that level, he could be a contender at these grand slams. I think. Mm-hmm. And he, he believes it too. Like, did you see his press conference after he beat Alcaraz? Someone had asked him, you know, about the match and about beating Alcaraz. And he goes, guys, like, I'm not that bad of a player. I've beaten yeah. good players before. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's pretty he, funny. Yeah. It, it is kind of interesting because, they were treating it almost like he was the number 65 guy in the world. And yeah. he's like, it's like, this is such a massive upset. And he's like, dude, I'm number seven. Like, <laughs> it's not that crazy. Yeah. They're treating him like Safian or something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, you ready to hop into segments? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, what is new in tennis? So this was something I mentioned a couple weeks ago, how the ATP finals was you know, breaking new records with the amount of prize money. And it's kind of something we've been bringing up pretty frequent, frequently. So decided I'd give a little report on this. So there was $15 million to give out here. And five players sealed over a million dollar paychecks this tournament, which is pretty crazy for a week, you know. Um, yeah, where insane. That's like a full year of payment for like 99% of tennis players, way more oh, yeah. than they receive. Oh yeah. And I just think it's well earned. They deserve it. They were the top, top guys in the world. So I'm glad that they're being compensated like it. Yeah. They're not going to need that ATP baseline. (laughs) No, it's gotta be kind of shitty to be, you know, the three guys that just didn't make a million dollars that tournament. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Rublev, I think feels pretty bad after this tournament, even though he got paid 360 grand for appearing. Yeah, exactly. All right, what about you? Yeah, so uh, my what's new was I saw an article where it was Alcaraz and his coach, Juan Carlos Ferrer, kind of reflecting on his season. And they were like, honestly, really just such a great year. They got 2,000 more ranking points this year, even though they played in one less Grand Slam. Obviously, Alcaraz didn't play in the Australian Open at the beginning of the year. So he played in pretty much less tournaments and got more points, which is – just a great result. But Ferrero did say Alcaraz must realize that the season is January to November. And Alcaraz kind of reflected on the comments that Ferrero made. And he was like, yeah, honestly, I probably mismanaged my energy a little bit. And that led to the sort of slight drop off he had after the U S open, because he's like, I have to realize the season isn't January to like June or july or august it's january to november so even though the grand slam season ends in august or early september the season still has another couple months after that yeah and at least he's realizing it now you know he's so young so it's easy to just make a mistake and now he can use that to learn learning experience and move forward yeah he has time to uh, adjust Mm -hmm. exactly Moving on, I mean, we can't really do a bet of the week this week. I mean, we could have maybe looked for a, a challenger or a, a different type of tournament to make a bet on, but I think this week just gonna just gonna skip over that part just because 
it's not going to be anything we're really informed on in terms of making a, a smart bet. It's probably just going to be a guess. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, no no need to force a bet. Exactly, exactly. So match of the week then. Yeah. So my match of the week was the center Djokovic in the group stages where he beat him 7-5, 6-7, seven, 7-6. Seven, seven, um, like I said, I think he had a little boost from the Italian crowd. Jumped up ahead, won the first set. And, um, you know, he had a clutch break at 5-5 after being down 15-40. And after that, once I saw the second set go into the tiebreaker, I pretty much thought that Djokovic had the match because he's been a beast in tiebreakers. And he is, it's Djokovic in the tiebreaker. You, you really expect him once he loses the first set to come back and win. But center back in the third set he got an early break but then Djokovic broke him right back and it was just a great match all around and I really like love this one shot that they're in a rally and center basically did a Djokovic-esque backhand where Djokovic hit an approach shot uh to the corner and center hit that like split backhand down the line that kind of curved in and just even Djokovic you saw him he smirked he he applauded so it was just a good match, uh, very high quality tennis. And, you know, I think the crowd helped center a little bit, but I think in the end it might have hurt him because Djokovic came back with a vengeance and beat him pretty handily in the final. But that was my match. What about your match of the week? My match of the week is uh, Djokovic beating Runa in that first match that we talked about, 7-6, 6-7, 6-4. It was an exciting match. I think it was great that it happened on day one because it kicked off the tournament well. But what really made it interesting to me was that it really showed that in a lot of matches, Djokovic still is – his game is the determining factor of how the match goes. Because if Djokovic is playing at a solid level, like how he, how he expects to play, he just controls the match. He His opponent can't do anything to beat him. And – even though it was close in that first set, it seemed like Djokovic just kind of was like, I'm going to control this match. I'm going to control the points I can win, and I'm going to get it done. And then in that second set, he had sort of a little bit of a lapse, and all of a sudden, Runa steals it, and you're like, oh, what, what's happening here? Is, is Djokovic going to lose? And then he just locks back in and all of a sudden comfortably takes the third set. And while there's, very, uh, there's a few circumstances where it's not the case, and Djokovic actually gets outplayed by his opponent. I think this just displayed that Djokovic has a level where if he plays up to his standard, there's nothing his opponent can do. Mm-hmm. I also like how this match had a lot of the hype going into it pre-match, like obviously with the Boris Becker factor. And, you know, they played, they kind of not a real rivalry, but they do have great matches. Yeah, and I mean, it's pretty even, too. It's not like Djokovic mm-hmm. has dominated him every time. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure when Runa was younger, he used to like be a hitting partner, one of the hitting partners for Djokovic, too. So it's yeah. weird how it comes full circle. Yeah, it's funny when you see like all these younger guys, and you're like, oh, I recognize him. Yeah, now yeah. he's the number three in the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And I, I think there was, a, there was an old picture that surfaced with Djokovic and young Sinner, too. Yeah, this like red curly mop on his head yeah well i think you you see that with like a lot of guys where it's like you probably there's there's like a really famous photo with like jason tatum and lebron james where it's like yeah everybody that has been around for so long 
Like I'm sure there were guys that are in the NFL that had pictures where it was them as a kid and Tom Brady, where yeah. this dude's been there for 20 years. So if you got a picture of him with you when you were 10, now you're 30. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now you have to try to beat him. That's the thing. You try to beat your childhood idol. Exactly. You're like, I had a, I had a photo of this guy on my wall. Like it's crazy. Dude, I, know. I feel like they, that's a saying Like you know, you've made it when you're playing your childhood idol or you're beating your childhood idol. Yeah. Crazy. Pretty insane. All right. And that's the show. If you're not already subscribed, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube at Painting Lines Podcast. Feel free to shoot us a DM or email us any questions or thoughts at paintinglinespodcast at gmail.com.